Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Independent journalist Anthony Lowenstein has been a long-time critic of the State of Israel and its occupation of the State of Palestine. His new book is called The Palestine Laboratory, and it looks at how Israel may be using the occupation to test, develop, and even market weapons. The dispute between Israel and Palestine has occupied most of the 20th century, but in many ways, its modern roots lie in the 1967 military occupation by Israel. At the same time, Israel has built up a high-tech military industry exporting arms around the world. And depending on where you get your figures, Israel is the 10th largest exporter of weapons in the world. Anthony Lowenstein, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. In the introduction to your book, you outlined how you grew up as a secular Jew. And during this time, you were instinctively a supporter of the State of Israel. Can you explain the process and the journey to become probably the highest profile critic of Israel, at least in Australia? When you're Jewish and growing up Jewish, this is probably the case in Australia. I think in most countries, it's a bit less these days, but I think it's still the case in most Jewish families. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say this. Israel is something that you generally support. You're told to support it. You are told by your parents, grandparents, Jewish community, rabbi, if you're seeing a rabbi, that this is what you do. It's expected because of what happened to Jews in the Second World War. And in my case, most of my family were killed by the Nazis. The handful that got out in 39 escaped and went to various countries around the world, Australia, UK, US, Canada. So when I was growing up, I was born in the mid-70s. So when I was growing up, Israel was seen as a necessary country, a country that, God forbid, something happened to us Jews again, like the Holocaust. We had somewhere to go. And for listeners who aren't aware, as a Jewish person, I can, assuming you can prove, in inverted commas, you're Jewish, which mostly means that your mother is Jewish. It goes through the mother line. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's the simple version. I can go to Israel tomorrow. And within two or three months, almost certainly, I could be an Israeli citizen with an Israeli passport. And the Palestinian, of course, does not have those same rights, although he or she may have far more connection to the land. So I was growing up in that environment. And I noticed pretty much from a young age in the 70s, 80s, a real antipathy towards Palestinians, a real distrust and hatred and really contempt, actually, for Arabs, for Muslims. I was hearing this at my Sabbath Friday night dinners from parents, but also cousins, but it was mostly based on ignorance. It wasn't really based on a great deal of knowledge about the conflict. And I guess as time went on, in short, I started speaking out about this and because I felt like for too many Jews, Israel has become their religion. Mm. It's replaced their religion. And I guess over the last 20 years or so, I've written books, spent time over there, lived in Palestine and felt that it wasn't the appropriate Jewish legacy of being known as a people that occupy Palestinians indefinitely. And so how how did your parents cope with this when you were growing up? When I was growing up, they were, my mother has now passed away, but I spoke to my father about this recently because I was doing a big story for the Good Weekend magazine. So I wanted to interview him and make sure I had all my facts straight before I published it. Mm. And he said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, words to the effect of that it was ignorance. 
it was ignorance. There just wasn't a lot of knowledge about what Israel was doing. I mean, that's also a bit of a cop out, of course, but I think. But I think there was a they felt uncomfortable when I was growing up if I was critical of Israel. You know, if I was hearing, for example, Yasser Arafat, who was the former Palestinian leader, he was regularly accused of being the new Hitler. Palestinians were said to be the new Nazis. I mean, it was just crazy stuff, I think, mm. then and now. It's actually still very common that those thoughts in the Jewish community. But I think as time went on, my father and my mother actually after 9-11 was quite a transformative event. My career, I guess, started soon after that. And they started reading more. Literally, it was they started reading more. They started being more open to ideas of being critical of Israel. I think Israel became, not that it was ever a center of their lives, it wasn't, but it was something that they were maybe more comfortable criticizing and but the impact of my work and their support of it as i talked about in the good weekend recently was that they lost most of their jewish friends yeah very it's, difficult yeah so it's been a difficult trajectory my father now is very critical of israel he has visited there many times including the west bank when i was living there in palestine and it's not necessarily exactly where i'm at on this issue but is deeply critical and is ashamed in fact of what israel's doing in our name but perhaps also you know in that period of time during your own awakening that I mean there wouldn't have been a lot of palestinians here in australia refugees or otherwise i imagine you mean in terms of sheer numbers you mean yes Look, the Palestinian population here is relatively small. There's roughly 100 and 120,000 Jews in Australia. Palestinians, there's, we don't actually have an exact number, but it's certainly less than that. And then and now, really, there's so little communication between the communities. Um, mm -hmm. Jewish communities mostly over here, the Palestinian Arab Muslim communities over there. And when there is ever an attempt by some Jewish or Muslim groups for interfaith conversation, the issue that routinely gets in the way or causes a breakdown is Israel-Palestine because there's not saying there's no middle ground. You can have a conversation about it, but so often there's just so little, I would say, empathy for the other. And there's also, I think, a real failure of many in the Jewish community to acknowledge that whereas, yes, in the past, Jews were in Australia and many Western countries were deemed as second-class citizens. There's no question about that. Jews are now, and obviously I'm generalizing, there are many Jews who are suffering and anti-Semitism is real and growing, but generally speaking, Jews are much more powerful than they were decades ago. That's uncontroversial to say. And Israel is an occupying nation. I think many Jews still feel, I don't know if it's uncomfortable or awkward or something like, along those lines of acknowledging what Israel has become. I mean, I remember having this very briefly conversation with a family friend a few years ago, and their view, basically, this is people I've known for all my life, their view was words to the effect of that whatever Israel needs to do to maintain itself as a Jewish state, we can live with that. But that also kind of indicates a process of separating the idea, the concept of Israel as a refuge for Jews yes. in the yes. event of something awful happening again from the political leadership or the political governance of Israel. Is there that is. How yeah, I think that's true, Monica. And also I should say that there was a recent study that came out, in fact, just this month in June that found that, yes, the majority of Australian Jews still felt some affinity for Israel, but there was profound dislike contempt even for Israeli government policy, particularly the current far-right government led by Netanyahu. So there is an ability to separate that. The problem is, I think, with that, what exactly are you separating there? 
Yes, not every government is run by Netanyahu, although he's been in charge seemingly forever. The occupation, which has been going for 50-plus years, Mm. has been continuing regardless of who's in power there. It's deepening. It's frankly permanent now. So Mm. if one is able to separate those two, I think it's kind of a... It's a dishonest separation. I mean, the Israeli government's not Israel, that's true, but in some ways they're not particularly opposed or not doing much about the occupation, not speaking out against it. Again, I'm not suggesting there are other Jews who are speaking out because obviously there are, I'm not the only one. But there is, I think, still a reluctance, as I often got told myself, why are you airing dirty linen in public? But at least it isn't having the debate in and of itself, the starting point, isn't that a positive move that you have Jews who, Jewish communities that are starting to, you know, to talk about the illiberal state of Israel at the moment, politically speaking, and that the debate might actually evolve from there? I mean, obviously, I would say yes to that. But if you ask most of the uh, Zionist lobbyists or so-called leaders of the Jewish community, they are petrified of that conversation because what they fear happening here is what's now happening in the US, which in the short version of that, there's currently a civil war going on, a non-violent civil war in the Jewish community. It's mm. generally along generational lines. In general, older Jews are much more supportive of Israel. In general, younger Jews are not. They are increasingly disillusioned with Israel. They say, how can we support a government in a country that's run by people who advocate ethnic cleansing as current members of the Israeli government are? And they're putting massive pressure on both their own organizations, Jewish organizations, but also the Democratic Party. They don't see much reflection in that in Joe Biden or the Democratic leadership now, but you do see growing numbers of Democratic members of Congress, roughly 10 or so, so not a lot, but some who are very critical of Israel, who talk about occupation, who talk about why is the US funding this and arming this. And Mm. so there is a shift going on, but the Jewish establishment is petrified of that conversation because the only way that Israel has survived as long as it has and as much of the world has been uncritical, I would argue, mostly towards Israeli policies, it requires fairly strong Jewish diaspora support. And if that starts to break down, Israel's got a problem. So let's talk about what's happening inside Israel itself, though, because there are progressive progressives in Israel who clearly have been expressing alarm about what the Netanyahu government has been up to. Um, is it fair to say that they're a minority at this point in time, or is change, do you think, possible from within Israel? I don't want to sort of put the the dampener on that, but obviously a lot of listeners will know in the last six months or so there's been huge amounts of protests in Israel against Netanyahu's attempts to new to the Supreme Court, and I obviously welcome those protests against an extremist government, but I think it's important that people realise that the vast majority of those people, what they're calling for is Jewish democracy. They openly say this. There's virtually no Palestinians protesting, virtually zero, and that's an important point because 20% of the Israeli population is Palestinian, of course, there's no one from the West Bank or Gaza there, and there are friends of mine who are on the Israeli left, the Israeli Jewish left, who are anti-occupation, who are saying you cannot call for Jewish democracy without calling for an end to the occupation. I mean, it's just a nonsense. You can't do both. And yet those conversations are mostly not welcome in that space. So yes, there obviously are Israeli Jews who are critical of, of what's happening and are opposed to it, protesting other forms of opposition. But the sad reality is that most studies show that the majority of Israeli young people are much more right-wing than their parents, which is a pretty scary thought. And the country's elections are reflecting that, where 
There's no real organized Israeli Jewish left. There are obviously Israeli Jewish leftists. Uh, of course there are, but they're actually shrinking in size, not growing. I'm talking about electorally here. Mm-hmm. So I make a comparison to apartheid South Africa back in the day where that regime didn't suddenly end because white South Africans woke up one day and realized, oh, this is terrible. I mean, the only way that was going to end, as the ANC and black South Africans were saying at the time and the white South Africans who opposed it, was outside pressure. It's the mm. only way. So yes, within Israel itself, the country's actually moving much further to the right, and that is a scary prospect for a nation with nuclear weapons. Now, you said in the introduction to your book that you used to support the two-state solution, but that you no longer do. What, what does a one-state solution look like for you? Well, let me say that the one-state solution is currently what exists, but it's an apartheid state. So there's basically one state, there's one government that controls everybody, whether you're Jewish or Palestinian, and that's the government that Israel obviously wants, and that's what a lot of the settlers, of course, want, and I would argue it's what a lot of Jewish diaspora wants. Mm -hmm. One-state solution is a democratic state where it's not Jewish, not Palestinian, not Christian, not Muslim. It's one democratic state. There would need to be some kind of truth and reconciliation akin to what South Africa did at the end of apartheid. Obviously, there's been huge amounts of crimes committed, and there's been crimes on all sides, but I would argue that the major crime began in 1948 when Israel was born and roughly three-quarters of a million Palestinians were forcibly removed. Obviously, Palestinians have committed terrorism as well against Israeli Jews. Of course, they have, and that's abhorrent. But there needs to be, I think, an understanding that any state that is not democratic, if it's Jewish majority or Muslim-controlled or Jewish-controlled, by definition, it's not democratic. And that view actually was used to be incredibly unpopular on all sides. Now public opinion polling shows that growing numbers of Palestinians believe in that idea, but very few Jewish Israelis do, which is not surprising really, because their dominance would be essentially neutered and ended. And as someone who is ultimately this has to be decided by Jews and Palestinians, not decided by, you know, Jewish person X like me in the diaspora. But I do think that there is a real People often sort of call the two-state solution the zombie solution now because whenever you ask a politician, whether it's Albanese or Biden or really anybody, they just sort of trot out this same line, two-state solution. It's nonsense. I mean, there's no way with any kind of real separation of the land is possible anymore. But it's not just a practical problem. It's also, I think, an, in my view, an ideological one that you're essentially trying to separate a people who in many ways actually are connected. Of course, there's a lot of distrust on both sides, for sure. But I think it is possible, as other states have done and have transformed, not perfectly. Ireland, Northern Ireland's not perfect. South Africa today is far from perfect by any means. But there is a way to transform from an apartheid situation to a quasi-democratic, or at least strive for that future. And I think a one-state solution is really the only just outcome, but that would require outside pressure. It would also require a pretty big change of heart within Israel itself. I mean... A massive change of heart. But then again, Monica, there wasn't a change of heart really politically from white South Africans 40 years ago. That change of heart came from outside pressure, which essentially said to South Africa, you have a choice. You can either stay... The whites were essentially a minority, were they not, in South Africa? They were. 
Whereas in Israel, you have what the figure I think you mentioned was 20% of the Israeli population are Palestinians. So they're very much the minority. I mean, how do you see that working? Well, they're a minority within Israel, but in terms of the whole territory that Israel controls, in fact, now Palestinians are a majority. I'm talking about the West Bank and Gaza. If you include one whole state, which I think you have to, Jews actually are a minority now, according to most demographic studies. So, I mean, on that level alone, on the current demographics, Israel has a problem on its hands unless they find some way to resolve this problem. And this is one of the whole conversations that's often so, when I find them deeply offensive, there's so many within Israel, the Jewish community are constantly talking about how do we maintain a Jewish majority? Now, I understand on one level why they say that, but can you imagine if other states are saying, how do we make sure that there are more Jewish babies than Palestinian babies? I mean, that's basically what they're saying. And in fact, they often say it explicitly. Well, it sounds like a an attempt to maintain Jewish supremacy. And this is why, this is exactly why growing numbers of Jews around the world, and for that matter, citizens, as most public opinion polling is showing, are increasingly critical of Israel because they say, what kind of state are we supposedly supporting here? A state that what wants to benefit Jews over anybody else, that wants to essentially, as some literally cabinet members in Israel are saying now, ethnically cleanse Palestinians? I mean, they're literally saying that. Mm. So I think Israel in that way has a growing PR problem, but ultimately without outside pressure, this won't really change. Well, let's talk about that outside pressure then because we've seen decades of attempts to, well, alleged attempts to, resolve this issue. Nothing seems to have worked. Can I take you to some of the things in your book? You talk about from the, the, the fact that from the 1950s, Israel had been developing a strong military industrial base. And I, I wonder whether the that military industrial base factors into the reluctance of some nations, in particular the United States, to not want to resolve this dispute in the way that you've articulated? I think that is definitely a factor. And one of the things that I found or realised during the writing of the book was because Israel has now sold some kind of defence equipment that could be drones or spyware or whatever it may be in the last decades to over 130 countries, so essentially the majority of nations on the planet, it's almost like an insurance policy that doesn't mean that country X won't criticise parts of Israeli policy, then maybe they will, and they have, but ultimately they want to need Israeli technology, so they think, or Israeli spyware, or Israeli drones, or whatever it may be. And I think you do find in the last years that so many nations now are going to Israel almost begging. I mean, just in 2022, for example, Israel just released its defence sales. It was the highest ever, 12.5 billion US, 25% of which was going to Arab autocracies. So talking about Bahrain, Saudi, Morocco, the list goes on. Now, how are those nations democratic? Obviously, they're not, and they're oppressing their own people. And how are the weapons getting to them, sorry? So Israeli weapons are going to those countries. Yes, well, Israel's selling it to them openly. I I mean, they're selling, I mean, for example, some of this was was born out of the Abraham Accords, which you know the Trump administration pushed, which was apparently a wonderful peace deal between Israel and its Arab neighbours. It was an arms deal. That's basically what it was. And these figures last year prove that all these nations, UAE, Bahrain, Saudi, Morocco, and others, are desperate for Israeli repressive technology to repress their own people. And it's being used on a daily basis. So... To answer your question, yes, Israel, I think, realized early on 
that they had to make friends in the world, which is something that any new nation would do. But the way they've done that principally, although not solely, is to sell weapons to pretty much every repressive regime on the planet in the last decades. And my book goes into detail. Everyone from, God, like where to begin, you know, Rwanda literally during the genocide, they've sold spyware to the Russians under Putin. They sold spyware and guns to Myanmar both before and after the genocide against the Rohingya. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And people might say, well, every nation that sells arms is amoral. Absolutely correct. The US is the world's biggest arms dealer, 40% of the world's weapons, and it's deeply amoral. Of course, that's true. But the difference is that I would argue that Israel has a ready-made Palestinian population who are occupied on their doorstep. And many of those weapons are trialed and tested in Palestine to the point where when Israel as a government or their companies promote these weapons or sell them, they actually say they've been battle-tested in Gaza or the West Bank or whatever it may be. And that seems to be acceptable to their benefactors. Well, it's very acceptable because, as I've shown in the book over the last decades, many nations, despite what they might say publicly, are desperate for what they claim is successful Israeli, say, counterinsurgency techniques in the West Bank or in Gaza or the use of Israeli drones, or in the modern age, the use of spyware. So, you know, Pegasus, some listeners will remember, which is an incredibly powerful tool that allows its user to control someone's mobile phone, everything, details, photos, texts. You can control someone's microphone and camera, even when the phone is off. I mean, it's a very powerful tool. Mm. And dozens of nations around the world are using that technology. And where is often that technology tested or the people who built it, where do they get that experience? Occupying Palestinians. It's like a, it's like a funnel between Palestine occupation and then selling it to the world. Which just makes you think that there's absolutely no hope for any change. But can I move you on to the issue? This surprised me that drones have been a, a pretty big growth area for Israel. What are some of the drones that they've developed and who's buying them? Because you write that Israel has been providing drones to Russia or provided drones to Russia mm. during Syrian, the Syrian civil war. And Russia was, of course, protecting Israel's arch enemy there, the Syria and its president. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, the Russia-Israel relationship is so ugly and murky. And there's a reason why, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, that Israel has basically been unwilling to particularly help Ukraine in any serious way. They have not sold them any hardware of any note, really, of very little. And that's why, because they want to maintain good relations with Russia, because they've been happy to allow, this is Russia, Israel to bomb Syria indefinitely for years. And of course, mm -hmm. Russia controls the skies in Syria. So it's murky. Who is Israel selling drones to? Well, one of the examples I think that will shock people the most is the European Union, Democratic Europe, has been using for a number of years now about three or four Israeli drones. They're unarmed, but they are monitoring the Mediterranean. And as the EU has made a decision in the last years to allow, sadly and outrageously, so many people to drown, in other words, the policy shifted from rescuing people at sea who were struggling on overcrowded boats to essentially allowing them to drown. That's been an unofficial US, so EU policy for about five or six years now. These rally drones are the eyes in the sky. So at a headquarters for Frontex, which is the European Union's border security force, in Warsaw in Poland, they have Israeli drone 24-7 footage coming into their headquarters. 
and they can see who's struggling, who's not, who should be rescued, and who shouldn't be. And the f- sad reality is, as I show in the book, and some other journalists have done this reporting as well, is that the EU is deciding to allow most people to drown. And the ones that they do rescue, which is very few, they send and give to the, Lib- to the Libyans who are obviously controlling a failed state where there are slave markets. So the Israeli drones that have been used and tested over Gaza in various Israeli-Gaza wars. That's why. That's exactly why the European Union is using those drones, because they've been battle-tested in Palestine. And there are so many other examples of where Israeli drones have been used in conflicts around the world. But I think people, in some ways, one of the more seemingly benign, because they're unarmed, use of drones, as I said, is in the Mediterranean, which seems to me almost a harbinger of where so much of border policies are going the border industrial complex i didn't come up with that name but i think it's a very good one it's a massively expanding industry so when you have in the 21st century so many nations western nations that are going to be i fear not welcoming the inevitably large numbers of climate refugees or resource war refugees how are they going to keep people out they're going to have to use surveillance technology and drones and Israeli technology already today and into the future will be a key part of that architecture. Mm. God, it all sounds so terribly depressing. So so if the West, you know, were to show some moral spine arc up about these arms sales by Israel to, to various, you know, unpalatable states around the world, Presumably one of the issues that it's that Israel is going to be terribly concerned about is, you know, is being ostracized. Imagine like Russia, you know, one of its deepest fears mm. is being ostracized by the rest of the world. Although it has to be said that being ostracized really hasn't ca- counted or stopped the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you know, how likely is it, do you think, that the West will actually at some point turn on Israel? Or do you think this is not going to happen ever? Um, in the short to medium term, it's unlikely, but I think there is, I hate to use the term tipping point because I think it's a bit of a false dawn, but there will come a point, and I think you see growing political opposition more at the civil society level in many countries about whether the 21st century is willing to accept a flagrantly, proudly apartheid state backed by the West and the Middle East, namely Israel, which is what Israel is. Now, right now, although you have a number of states that claim they're opposed to it and the EU puts out very terse press releases about settlements, it means nothing because the EU, for example, is Israel's biggest trading partner. So I think in the short to medium term, there is little chance of Israel being isolated. What it does fear, though, is I don't think it's going to happen overnight. What it does fear, though, is not just diplomatic or military isolation, but cultural isolation. So whereas with South Africa years ago, that regime didn't fall overnight. It took years and years, of course. And part of it, a key part of it, was cultural boycotts, mm. saying that musician X or musician Y will not go and perform in, say, you know, Cape Town or Johannesburg as a symbol of solidarity with black South Africans. Which is what's happening with Russians at the moment. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's certain questions that I personally feel a bit uncomfortable about how that's being done with Russia, but man, that's a separate conversation. But yes, I do think that there is a, that movement's already happening in relation to Israel. It's a call by Palestinian civil society, BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanction. I think there is a growing call in Congress. It's obviously small, but it is growing to at least question or cut military ties. It won't happen overnight, to be sure. 
I think there is, for example, in Australia, the Greens have a recent policy which they've updated in the last month or so, obviously not in government directly, but far more critical of Israeli policy. There is a shift going on in certain countries. And of course, the flip side to that is many other nations like India, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is now the world's biggest nation, the world's biggest self-described democracy, and the world's biggest ethno-nationalist Hindu nation, which is moving towards, I fear, a very scary Hindu fundamentalist future, openly talking about pogroms against Muslims and, in fact, already committing them, is very close to Israel and is proudly supporting that relationship. So the future, obviously, is not written, and but I do think that you do find in many nations a growing, not just awareness of what's happening in Israel-Palestine, but a campaign to try to at least put pressure on the political leaders in our nations to at least address them. It won't happen overnight, but ending South African apartheid didn't happen overnight either. But do you think that cultural isolation alone is capable? No, not alone, not alone, but it's part of it. It's definitely part of it. And I know that- Probably a bigger part of it though is for nations to stop buying their arms. Of course. That's obviously, absolutely. I mean, you could say that if I don't buy from Israel, then they'll buy from France or Russia or America. I mean, the arms industry itself is inherently amoral, right? I mean, I think it's regarded as the most corrupt industry on the planet. I mean, the sales, I think, in 2022 globally were, I think, over $2 trillion. I mean, it's just insane amounts of money, which Israel plays a part, but obviously many other nations are very big on that as well. The arms industry is part of it, but Israel, particularly as a nation, I think, desperately wants legitimacy Mm. and every nation i guess does to an extent but on one hand they're incredibly proud of their history which i think is problematic but they're also incredibly insecure and although on the face of it might seem bizarre when they have pretty much most of the world on side where it matters buying their weapons whatever it may be i think there's actually a lot of real insecurity and the shifts that are going on as i said before in the jewish communities and the diaspora particularly in the u.s in the uk I think does potentially in years to come present problems for Israel because without that support, that really major support, Israel's not just losing potentially financial backing, but also almost an emotional support, which is really vital for a state that I think is so craving legitimacy in the 21st century. So that insecurity, which uh, is causing Israel to use its, you know, obviously well-developed arms industry to flex its muscles? I mean, is that the mechanism that it uses to gain legitimacy, if you like, and to dispense with its own internal feelings of insecurity? I think, look, it's hard to psychoanalyze, right? I think that's part of it. I think also Israel realized very soon after its establishment, although this increased after 1967 when it was occupying the East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights, that there was a real global interest, which of course they were pushing, in how Israel was doing it. There's kind of a sense, I think, of in many other nations around the world and within Israel itself, definitely. I mean, to the point where, just as an example, this week in the Jerusalem Post, there was a big story. It's a very conservative pro-settler newspaper in English, which was talking about proudly how Israel is selling weapons to everybody basically in the world. This is what should make us proud as Israeli Jews. This is what the Jewish state, 75 years after the Holocaust, has created. But it shows what your framing could be. You and I and listeners might find that an appalling legacy of the Jewish people, whereas the Jerusalem Post, and there's one particular writer, 
regarded as a huge success. Look at us now. So many nations, so the article said, are much less likely or willing to criticize our policies because they want our weapons, <clears throat> which is sort of true in a way, as I say in the book. But of course, the framing for me is the opposite of how they argued it. What can change? What can change? I think, as I said before, is not just the cutting potentially of military ties or all these challenging military ties. It is also, I think, an acknowledgement in, in wider civil society, really, as what happened by the early '90s with South Africa, that do we want to accept a proudly apartheid state in the global community? I mean, that's a question that people, many of whom maybe are scared to raise that, as I hear all the time still. Don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, that weaponization of that, I think, is very real. Yeah, that conversation needs to happen. I agree with you. And it's actually the question that I wanted to ask you next, actually, and finally, as it happens. But, you know, one thing that's proven as intractable as peace between Israel and Palestine is this lack of open and kind of fearless debate in the Australian media, at least, about both the frozen conflict and about Israel's kind of outsized role in in world affairs. I mean, first of all, do you agree that Australian media is prone to shy away from any subject concerning Israel? Yes. The short answer is yes. And obviously, I've written a lot about this in the last 20 years, not so much in the new book, but I've written about and spoken about a lot. Obviously, there is there are journalists and media outlets that cover this issue. Of course, there are. Absolutely. But I think there is a, and I've even found this, the book came out in the last weeks, I'm not going to name the people, but senior people in the net public broadcast or ABC have been nervous about airing interview without getting the Israeli embassy to respond. I mean, what I'm saying, by the way, was not defamatory against anyone. It was just filling the need. They wouldn't do that, for example, if I was writing a book about, I don't know, Myanmar or Nauru, right? I mean, in other words, the unspoken element there is, and any journalist who works in particularly the SBS or ABC, but other organizations too, will say that there has been in the past and remains massive amounts of not just pressure from an Israel lobby on journalists and editors, but a great deal of self-censorship. That's a key part. And I think a lot of the people in the public probably don't realise, and I'm the co-editor of co-founder of Declassified Australia with Peter Cronow, who used to be at Four Corners, and we've done a bit of reporting on this particular issue in the last year, which essentially shows how lobby groups, and this didn't start the last year, it's been going on for about two decades, Lobby groups, particularly around three countries, Israel, Taiwan, and the US, spend huge amounts of money on sending journalists and politicians to those countries. Taiwan wasn't so much the case until the last few years. Israel, the US has been the case for a long time. So when you get a free trip, as many journalists and politicians do. And business people. And business people, absolutely. But I'm talking about the lobby particularly is focusing on journalists and politicians across the board. Labor and liberal, not so much the Greens, and journalists across the board, then I think to some extent, if you're a journalist and you're accepting those free trips and you aren't actually therefore being critical when you return, like they're propaganda trips. <laughs> That's basically what they are. So yes, is there a fear of being accused of anti-Semitism in the media? Yes, undeniably, because I hear it all the time. And is there a fear of being mercilessly attacked and kind of white-anted by an Israel lobby that goes after yourself or editors or publishers. Absolutely. I mean, this is the now to be clear, 
and Israel lobby has the right to lobby for its position. Absolutely, it does. The difference is what regularly happens realistically is not so much lobbying for a position, but trying to silence critical voices. I mean, I have so many examples, I won't go into them now, but so many examples of more critical voices of Israel being silenced or censored or, and this is often censored by media outlets. A level of intimidation at many Absolutely. So I think that's changing, but it's changing. It's changing because there aren't growing numbers of at least some Palestinians being heard. There's more critical Jews being heard. It hasn't changed government policy yet, but it's changing public opinion. I mean, the latest survey in Australia from a few years ago suggested that now many Australians support Palestinians far more than they did five years ago. And that's happening for some reason, right? It happens because they're reading far more about what's going on. And the Israel lobby here and in the US and elsewhere is petrified of that change because years ago it was much easier to control elements of the press. There were only, what, three or four outlets. Now mm. there's a proliferation. How do you do that? So, yeah, that's the reality in the past and it is changing, but it's still anyone who writes on this issue will tell you or does stories about it in the media that it is a, it's a reality for a lot of people who work on the question, yeah. Well, absolutely fascinating. Anthony, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time and the best of luck with the book. Well, thank you so much. It's been great. And on that note, I'd like to thank Anthony Lowenstein for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk all things media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. I'm Monica Attard, and thank you for listening.